Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I hope you'll open a Bible to the book of Isaiah. Um, This will be really your best help as I go through this bit. So if you would open up to Isaiah, I am grateful to be with you. And I'm told that we have different levels of students, faculty and staff here. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I greet you on behalf of my community at Beeson Divinity School, um, many of whom are praying for us today. Um, right now, there's one class in particular that's so grateful for you. Uh, that's my Daniel class because I'm not there, and so they're, they're really thankful for you. But they're praying for us, as is my wife Heather and several friends. So we feel the presence of God uh, in the prayers of His people. I am um, grateful to Dr. Aiken, my f- former colleague and dean, who uh, has always been I found a, a, a friend and a delightful person of integrity. Um, I've, I've always liked Danny as basically what you see. Uh, there are times you wish he would lie to you, but he doesn't. And so he's, I appreciate him. And Bruce, thank you for the introduction and for the opportunity to be here. Um, and to renew acquaintance with um, uh, my friend and former student, Todd Borger, and several others. I'm glad to be here. Um, and so... I want to open up God's Word a little bit for you on Isaiah's gospel theology. I confess that I'm a person who has been a long time on a quest to understand how it is that 2 Timothy 3.14 to 4.2 is true and should be handled and should be followed. That is, Paul saying to Timothy, And I think if I hear someone call him young Timothy one more time, I will probably rend my garment and run screaming from the room. Um, That's a bit like me calling Todd Borger young Timothy because he's my student. He's younger than I am. That doesn't make him young per se. And like, like Todd, Timothy was a veteran missionary. Ever notice that? This, This guy had been with Paul. He'd been in trouble. He'd been through it all. But Paul says him now, you're a veteran. Let me remind you. Keep to the scriptures. For all scriptures breathed out by God. Thus it has the character of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness that you might be fully the man of God and go preach this word. Now, I first of all thought about that uh, passage along the inspiration and authority of the Scriptures, which is very important to me uh, as when I was a seminarian, uh, because I held a a view that was different than most of my teachers. So, I believe in the Scriptures where God breathed, and hearing things like Jesus said that that the the Old Testament, He didn't come to set it aside, and it won't be set aside as long as there are heavens and earth, really. 
and that Paul was telling Timothy, all these scriptures that you've been reading, they're profitable, not just for salvation, but for life. How is that true? Because I didn't believe it was up to me to decide if it was true. How is that true? And so I've kind of been on a lifelong quest of faith seeking understanding. And to give you a bit of my story that Bruce didn't give you, uh, 40 years ago, I was a senior in high school. And I was already serving as an interim pastor. And I was at a church that met at the crossroads of, of gravel roads. And it was the Belfast Baptist Church, nowhere near Ireland. Not even really near Neosho, Missouri. And there were about 10 people there. And they put up with me. And I was going to school and trying to do all that. And for the rest of my life, I've been going to school, trying to pastor, trying to understand, trying to teach, trying to write, trying to do these things. When I was a seminarian in 1981, I took my first Isaiah class. My teacher was probably the first Southern Baptist professor to write a dissertation on Isaiah. He wrote it in 1944, in which he argued that the book had been written by more than one author living in very different times. And as I looked at the scriptures and understood that, I noticed that there were others who disagreed with him and things pretty much fell along this line. At about chapter 39 of the book, the first 39 chapters are more or less from the eighth century BC from Isaiah's time, but after that it's, it's either from or about the sixth century BC when Israel's in exile. And my teacher said he believed in predictive prophecy. He just didn't believe most prophetic books were 27 chapters chock full of nothing but predictive prophecy. Now, I found that to be a relevant comment because most prophecy wasn't. But I began to, began to go on a quest for other options. What does the scripture say? How does history help us? understand what Scripture says. How does theology and the New Testament and church history and the history of interpretation, all the stuff you're studying, how does it help you actually understand Scripture so that you can teach the Word of God? And so sometime too long ago, I accepted the responsibility of writing a commentary on Isaiah. And the time's gotten really out of hand on it. But in the midst of this, from 2009-2014, I taught a home Bible study of septuagenarians and octogenarians. Man, I love those people. Um, and they wanted me to just go chapter by chapter. And so for something on close to, uh, we meet about 20 times a year and still do, something along 20 times a year, we went through Isaiah, outline by outline, passage by passage, and we learned tons together. And what I was learning, I was trying to put back into God's people and see that's what we do, right? The seminary has a, has a big responsibility of taking the scholarship and what we learn and of understanding and meshing it into our teaching so that people can understand. So I just want you to know I'm a fellow quester and I hope it doesn't discourage you to know that this is a lifelong quest you're on. If you're married to one of these lifelong questers, I hope it doesn't discourage you. The good news is we have work to do. God has us fully employed. Well, let's get employed a bit here with Isaiah. If the breaks of the book 
shouldn't necessarily be chapter 39 and 40 and chapter 55 and 56. What, what have I found? I'm going to give you a summary of what I found. And that is that Isaiah presents a gospel theology. And those of you who are taking notes, it would go something like this. The Hebrew word that's translated five times in the book of Isaiah and other places as good news really just means news. News. The context has to determine whether it's good or bad. First Samuel 4.19, the same words used to deliver very bad news to Israel. The Ark of the Covenant's been taken. Now that's good news for the Philistines. But pretty bad news for Israel. So all through the Bible, we are offering good news to those who believe, but quite frankly, pretty bad news to those who do not. News. God is declaring something. And in the ancient world, it, it would be the king declaring something. Here's the rule that you would do, or here's the king's will. We're delivering news to you. We're proclaiming the ambassadors would do this. And that news would include a narrative, usually about the king's decision, a story, a history, and what you're supposed to do about it. Your obligations. And this is what gospel is in the New Testament. It's news. It's a summary of God's declaration to us. Some of them are quite long. Go read Romans 1, 8 to chapter 15, 13. 15 chapters that lay out the gospel from beginning to end. God's news. Some are often pretty short. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Let me give you the heart of the thing. Not the whole of the thing, but the heart of the thing. But he's assuming that we know the whole. So when Isaiah uses the word gospel and he presents the word gospel, what are the elements? Well, here they are finally. What's the definition of gospel in Isaiah and also in the Bible, particularly the gospel writers who pick up his language of gospel? Here is a gospel. God, the creator... We must start there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Creator. God the Creator is taking creation. That is all we see, all the people in it, all the things that would be outside, all the creatures of our God and King. He is taking creation from its original flawless state. You have a lovely campus here, and we have lots of beautiful days, don't we? There's no reason to think that the world isn't a beautiful place, but it was originally much more beautiful. What would that have been like? I don't know, because you, you, you take a look outside and see it's pretty nice, and I'm from the Midwest. I like it out there. I was told, I've been told, or perhaps I've read, of the Lewis and Clark expedition. You remember them about, you know, in the early 1800s? They go out and they go see America. Nobody had seen it before. And some of their descriptions, for instance, when they, when they first got a broad look at the Great Plains and all the grassland, it was full of animals and it was unbelievable what they described. Well, it looks pretty good today on a nice day, but it didn't look like that. I think that's going to be a little bit like when we see the new creation that we'll mention in a moment, but it was flawless, beautiful. He's taking it from that original flawless state through its current sin-marred, though lovely state. 
We see a lot of times what we've done to the world by accident, by mistake, and sometimes on purpose. There are those in this world who believe the whole goal of life is to be what, well, Wallace Stegner called boomers. That is, you blow into a community and you take as much as you come fr can from it, like a strip miner or some other sort of excavator, and you go on with your wealth to the next place where you do it again. That not only describes a lot of Americans, I greatly fear it describes a lot of pastors. The church does not exist for us to mine attendance out of it to get a better church. Now, that's the culture we live in. That's what we, we don't even know it. We can figure out that you shouldn't do certain things, that, that would be, it would be wrong to abort a baby, it would be wrong to do these other things. But sometimes we are just as dumb as we can be about how culture-shaped we are. And one of them is in a lot of our views of leadership. A lot of them has to do with what we do as communities. There's always been a town-gown fight in communities like this, but why is that? Because so many of us blow through the community without caring for the community, and some people have to live here year-round. So, also in our relationships, sin is real and it touches people as well as places. I have suffered for the sins of my grandfather, my father, and now as it goes on, I have made sure my children, my child has suffered for me and my two grandchildren have already, one of them only being eight months old, has already suffered for my sins. Now I take no joy in this, but we might as well act as if this is true. Humanity, even in its gracious and kind capacities, mars the creation and mars relationship and mars families and mars communities by our sins and our marriages and everything else. And so God is taking us through that. And we are on the way to a final glorious state. Since this is more encouraging than what I've been saying, um, I, I'm going to read some of these passages uh, to you today. So where we are getting to the final glorious state. Because perhaps it's good early in the week to realize you're not on the way to another test. You're not on the way to another paycheck, you are on the way to a home that is final and glorious where there's no suffering, sin, death. No more disappointment, no more harming other people, no more harming the earth, no more of this. Oh, God's taking us from that original through what we see today and worse too, to this final glorious home by means of. How is God doing this? by his personal. And in the book of Isaiah and throughout the scripture, God is portrayed in lots of ways. In Isaiah, he's the holy one of Israel. He's holy, 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 according to chapter six. He is their judge. He is their redeemer. He is their lawgiver. He is their savior, according to chapter 33. He's the suffering king who dies for us, according to chapter 53 understand that God the Father and God the Son, but also God the Spirit who can be grieved. The Holy Spirit, according to chapter 63, who gave Moses all his victories in Egypt and all Israel's victories as they went to the promised land. God personally, Father, Son, Holy Spirit lives in us, doesn't he? 
And he has sent his son according to Isaiah. There are so many of these passages. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 32, 42, 49, 50, 53, 61. There are about 10 of these messianic passages. Not ones we make up in our head, but that are actually messianic passages. That promise us that his son will come through the Davidic lineage, he will be personal, and by the way, he'll take on flesh. God among us, personally. And the Holy Spirit now lives in all of us, enlivening us Christians, giving us life. But more than that, according to the New Testament, and emphasize uh, a lot in Dietrich Bonhoeffer, do you really believe that what you see around you is the body of Christ? Do you? It's what the Bible says. Look around you and see Jesus. See his people, see his body. Understand that he's not left himself without witness and that he is with us always, even to the ends of the earth. God personally personally dealt with Isaiah, and he comprehensively deals with us. That is, people. Isaiah is a great missionary book. In chapter 19, for instance, he says that Israel, Assyria, and Egypt are all God's people, all God's inheritance. Not an amazing thing. That in chapter 66, God will send his servants to the end of the earth to bring believers from all these nations back to God. It's a missionary book. Understand that God is comprehensively bringing people, places, creatures, and things through his personal redemptive work. God's working hard to redeem us from sin from decay, from death. If you have Isaiah 1 open, you see some of this kind of decay and death and sin that affects everything. Chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? And it goes on to say your whole head is sick, your whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Oh, you're sick, my friends, he says. Oh, you're sick and you're dying. And this is what the sin has done to you. Um, if you've ever translated this and you're in an exegesis class, let me tell you, this is brilliant, beautiful, comprehensive poetry. Isaiah, among everything, is a consummate literary artist. And he's laying all this out as a young prophet and saying we're sick. He calls them... Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 1 and verse 10 and verse 11, maybe to a group of people 
who look as good on the outside as we do today, verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And if you city people wonder, verse 11, as a, as a, as a former rural person, but whose heart has always been there, this means money. You mean we'd turn over our animals, we'd turn over our flocks, we'd turn over our livelihoods. We can't buy our way to God. They're not killing their pets. They're giving up their livelihood. Won't that be enough? He calls it trampling of the courts in verse 13. Vain offerings. When they assemble for their special events, for their lectureships and for their Ash Wednesday services and all these other things, He says, they're a burden to me. What's he want? Verse 16, wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And then Isaiah starts with a whole bunch of two word statements. It's beautiful in Hebrew. He just knocks the thing out like that, like that. Wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be weighed as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And that verse includes that scarlet is a special luxury dye. I've... um, I've often enjoyed, I get, I get my hair cut at a place where mainly there are women getting their hair cut. And I, I really enjoy that, particularly when they're doing the shading of the hair, dyeing the hair and painting the hair. It's really an artist kind of deal. And they, they take it very seriously and they strip it all down. They do these other things. Well, imagine that. I'm going to take a garment or I'm going to take somebody's hair and I'm going to dye it just as thick and as right and as perfectly as you can. Go ahead and do that. Though your sins are like that, we can get the stain out. They're going to become completely clean like new spun wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Over and over again, Isaiah says, this gospel is about removing the sin from you. And God has done that work. He has done it through his word, reminding his people. He's done it through the death of the servant in this text. He's working, 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 redeeming from sin and decay. Now, that's going to be the main emphasis uh, for today, and I'm going to flesh that out just a little bit in the time I have left. Tomorrow, I want to talk about the work he shares with the servants. There's great good news for us believers and for all your followers. Some of them, again, as I've said, live to be 80 They get to be old people. They get to see a lot. God has worked for us to share in his kingdom until he takes us home. There's work to be done. And he shares it with his servants. And that work must be done in God's way, in God's timing. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. But what about this book of Isaiah? I've introduced this gospel Let me introduce to you the plot of the book. The literary shape of this book is one story that I've just told it to you. From creation through the creation we see now to the new creation.
through the redemptive work uh, that is personal and is comprehensive. Well, let's see how this plot and how the themes and how the history shapes up. The book of Isaiah occurs in seven cycles from sin through redemption to Zion. And the chapter divisions aren't quite what they often are in the commentaries. Chapter 1, verse 1, you've seen the sin, haven't you? You've heard all about it, probably more than you want to on a Tuesday. Tuesday's supposed to be a nice day. Well, then I think it's good that we just skip over a little bit chapter 2 because that's about the day of the Lord and how the nations are coming to the temple in Jerusalem. But, but you know, God's people are holding back. Therefore, they're going to be judged systematically for their materialism and for their political maneuvering and for, as chapter 3, verse 15 says, for grinding the face of the poor. And God will use judgment to cleanse them. And then chapter 4, here's the first time that we come to Zion. 4-2, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors. Ooh, good news. There'll be survivors. Bad news, they'll be called survivors. But they will be with God. Verse 3, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem... You see what he's doing? He's using Jerusalem, which is a real flesh and blood, brick and stone, mortar place as a metaphor for the greater city. Verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create. The Creator will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there'll be a canopy shade on a hot day. There'll be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Oh, God's got a home for His people. We've gone from a sin-charged city to a shade-protected home. And if Isaiah had written nothing else, this would be a beautiful little piece, wouldn't it? It would stand up really well with Zephaniah. It would stand up really well with Haggai and some of the shorter books. If he never wrote another word. Here's this gospel cycle from the sin and the judgment that's coming. It reads a lot like Joel, doesn't it? To renewal. Those first four chapters somehow in some ways introduced the book. But this book is written against the Assyrian era, the whole thing. And in 743 BC, Assyria invaded Judah, left it charred, did these different things. And yet the prophet looks and sees God cleansing and bringing and renewing. And there'll come a day where we'll live where it's safe and cool and it's a beautiful thing. But you come to chapter 5. My uh, friend and associate dean, Grant Taylor, wrote, wrote a dissertation, a good one, had a good supervisor uh, on this passage and then chapter 27 and then in 
the New Testament. First of all, it's a wedding. Uh, Have you ever been, have any of you gotten to be in the wedding party? And in America, every now and then, they let, they let the, the maid of honor and the, and, the, and the best man say something. It's usually a bad idea in America. Well, let's say, so you, it's, it's like the best man taking the microphone. Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. And beloved really means friend. My friend had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Not just wild, impossible grapes in Hebrew. Couldn't possibly get them out of that. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. He's singing for Yahweh. What more is there for me to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it when I look for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? I'll tell you what I'll do with my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, it'll be devoured. I'll break down its wall, it'll be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Oh, Isaiah's on that sin theme again, isn't he? He's on that sin theme. And it gets a lot stouter. I read you the easy bits. Materialism and wild party and all these different things that are going on. It's not new. It's very old. And he names one woe after another. What's God going to do? For unfortunately, the Assyrians are on the rise and Israel and Judah don't seem to understand the times in which they live. God redirects Isaiah's ministry in chapter six and tells him he will preach until there is nothing but a remnant left, a minority, a bit. I'm gonna talk about this tomorrow. More bluntly, believe it or not, than what I'm going to right now, which is to say, God calls. He calls us to faithfulness. The results, the successes that we look for may or may not happen. God determines that. Isaiah lived in a time in which he knew he had a long ministry and very few followers. Jeremiah had, uh, good news is, an international ministry. Ebed Melech was an Ethiopian, an African man who followed his teaching. Baruch was a Jewish man, friend of Jeremiah, as best I can tell with maybe one more exception. That was the entirety of those who followed him in his 40 year ministry. But what a man. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had total even with people only coming to stay at his seminary for six months, a total of 181 in in five years. Half of them died in the war and so forth. Let me tell you something. Most of us have to be willing, we all have to be willing to let God's results be enough. Some of us want to be in small places and God makes us go to big ones. Some of us want to be in big ones and God makes us go to small ones. Some of us want to go to the ends of the earth and God says, go home. Some of us say, I like it. I don't want to be more than 10 mile radius or five nautical miles away from my mom and grandma who are going to help me raise my kids. You don't get to decide. God decides. 
Now, the good news is he loves you. When he's, he's telling Isaiah all this stuff, he said, I want you to go, but there's going to be a lot of devastation. He preaches of a coming Savior who will be virgin born in chapter 7. He preaches of a king who will have throne names that include mighty God in chapter 9. In chapter 10, he says the day will come where the Assyrians will come clear up to the neck of Jerusalem, but they will not succeed. Now chapter 11, look at this one, 11.1. We come to Zion the second time. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's dad, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he'll judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he'll kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The king we've all waited for. The just, perfect, loving ruler. What about the earth? Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, if you parents were not already shocked and scared with verse 6, verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. I just imagine my granddaughter, eight months old, playing with her little cobra. She likes balloons, I think she'd be fascinated by a snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, plural, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We can't fully appreciate what these images would be like. Um, there's a, there's a piece of ground where I come from in southwest Missouri. It's been owned by both sides of my family. My family all run together right there in the cemetery where we're all buried right there. And I can just imagine it's, it's, it's great grazing land. And I just have this vision in my mind's eye. My dad's still alive. But I have this vision in my mind's eye that when he dies and wakes up, he will find my grandfather standing over the ridge taking a look and they will look together and you'll hear Pop say, our bears are doing all right, the lambs are okay too, but did you ever see anything like this before? We can't imagine it. And those rural person, I every now and then give way to the cities. In chapter 65 and Revelation 21 echoes that I see a city as clean and pure and bright as it always could have been. Even the cities, clean and bright and pure. 
and the nations coming to the Savior in verse 11. And what will we sing that day? Chapter 12, verse 1. You will say in that day, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you're angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. With joy, you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. How beautiful is that? We will sing and we will draw water. Think of all those passages in John, water from the wells of salvation. Jesus meeting that woman by the well said, you know, if you knew who you're talking to, you'd tell them, you would ask for living water. Jacob well's pretty good. It had been lasting several hundred years. I, I've got a deeper well. We're going to drink from that well. And we will sing with all the saints who've gone before. And what a beautiful piece. If Isaiah had stopped there, he would have written about as much as Hosea and one could argue better than Hosea, as great as Hosea was. He's taken us from a sin-ruined vineyard to a home with wells of salvation through the coming of God's Davidic king. And he gets to preach it. The setting is about 732 B.C. The Assyrians have come into the land and Isaiah's comforting the king and the people in a real life ministry like you get to have. And then time, I've not used my time well enough to go through it all except quickly. He starts again in chapter 13 with the bane of war. Seems like the United States been at war pretty much all my life. whether we sent everybody or we paid people to go. And the world's been at war one way or the other. The Assyrians brought war to the doorstep of everybody in the ancient world, either the threat of it or the actuality of it because they were building an empire. By 709 BC, their king had defeated all of his enemies and he was giving throne gifts, coronation gifts to his people who served him and his gods. He had just about achieved world domination. And that was the news. That's what everybody talked about. Look at chapter 25 with me. Isaiah working in that context as the great poet, thinker, narrative writer, having gone through all these nations who were having war, who were suffering, who were fighting off the Assyrians, who were doing everything they could to win. He comes to chapter 25, having said he, God would judge the world in chapter 24, all those nations, verse 1 of chapter 25, oh Lord, you're my God. I'll exalt you. I'll praise your name. You've done wonderful things, planned, formed of old, faithful and sure. You've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. 
For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Remember chapter four? For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. What an image. Like heat in a dry place. But you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down on this mountain. Zion, the Lord of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. I guess even teetotalers like me will have a good taste of the good stuff. <laughs> of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. See, that's the coronation meal. Come eat of these delicacies. Verse 7, and he will swallow up, and that's a word that means he will judge it. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all people, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. That's the coronation gift Yahweh gives to his people. You want to serve him? Would you like, or would you rather serve the Assyrians? The Assyrians will give you money. The Assyrians will keep you safe. The Assyrians, as long as you pay them, won't be too bad and too hard to deal with. Your politics can work in a way, or you can serve Yahweh. He'll swallow up death forever. That's the gift. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken We'll say on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What's the throne gift God gives to his subject? It's actually, and I know we have philosophers here and they could figure all this out, but it's basically the removal of a negative. No more death. Though if you've seen someone dying or die, you know how real, this is not abstract, taking away death and making dead bodies alive is the most extraordinarily personal redemptive act that God does. Chapter 26, verse 19, just another one, 26, 19 on this subject, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Jesus and the Pharisees disagreed about many things. They did not disagree that the Bible teaches resurrection of the body from the dead. In a tough spot, Paul, who I think had a wicked sense of humor, not wanting to be beaten or maybe, you know, be thrashed about one more time, in a, in a tough meeting, he set the Pharisees against the Sadducees because one believed in the resurrection, the other one didn't. Pharisees were pretty good Bible people. Jesus was a pretty good Bible interpreter. The Old Testament does not just teach that we go to sleep and then are in some dark gravy kind of place, but that God raises the dead. And chapter 27 ends with the people in Zion. And he could leave it there. But he just keeps living, you see. One of, the, one of the brilliant things that Isaiah does, I think, uh, some chalk this up to editing and redaction, but a good poet knows how to leave his work or her work where it could be finished at any time. 
And we have another cycle in 28 to 35, and the longest one in 36 to 56, verse 8, and then two more. How does the story end? You keep reading these and you'll see from sin to redemption to Zion. Go with me for one last passage. Chapter 66. As God brings all this to a conclusion, as Isaiah, his poet, puts some of his last works down, right around the time of 681 B.C. when Sennacherib, the king of of Assyria, dies. What's the future hold? Verse 15 of chapter 66, Behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign from them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pull, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away. And a student of mine did an interesting paper in which she showed basically that's the, those are the places the apostle Paul went. He seemed to say, where am I supposed to go? These would be the places. That would be good. To the coastlands far away that have not heard my name or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters and mules and dromedaries, every way they can get them there, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them I will take for priests and Levites. Can you imagine that Gentiles like you and me, priest, kingdom of priests, entered into the kingdom of priests of the holy nation? For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh will come, but they will see the enemy of God burning. That's a pretty sober message for Isaiah. Maybe he was starting another cycle and stopped. But he takes us one last time to Zion while remembering all of us who are the servants of the Lord of the work that must be done in all these places. And in my life, it's been work to be done from Singapore to Wanda, Missouri. It doesn't matter where the Lord puts you. It's the faithful service that he would call us to do that matters the very most. God is going to redeem the entirety of what we see He's doing it through his personal, comprehensive, redemptive work. Isaiah's gospel is to take us not once, but seven times from the sin and the sorrow that it causes to the redemption of God and a final home that is real with real bodies, real people, real life. Let's not lose the glory of the scriptures. Isaiah's been called the fifth gospel because he's got such great theology I think the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, who would say to him, oh, no, 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 that's the first gospel. We knew what to write because the Savior, but both of us, us and the Savior, knew what to write because we'd read Isaiah. So I hope you will read it. I hope you will enjoy it. And I hope whether you come tomorrow or not, you will enjoy your part of being a servant to take this gospel wherever it needs to go. Let's pray.
Father, you're good and you're kind to us. I thank you for this community, students, faculty, staff, friends, supporters. I ask that you would give them grace to be encouraged today and filled with the glory of your gospel. And we thank you that we may sing about it and we may go forth as one of your creatures to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.